0: This episode of Stage 9 is brought to you by Audible.com, offering more than 180,000 titles for smartphone, tablet, and desktop. To get a free audiobook of your choice and help Trek FM at the same time, visit Audibletrial.com/slash Trek FM. And also by Enterprise in Space, an international program of the nonprofit National Space Society. Find out how you can help science and education and become a virtual crew member aboard the NSS Enterprise Orbiter by visiting EnterpriseInspace.org. And if you want to join the conversation and share your thoughts on this episode, join the Babel Conference, our listeners group on Facebook. Just type B-A-B-E-L into the Facebook search field. We look forward to seeing you there.
1: You're listening to Trek FM.
0: Hello and welcome to Stage 9, Trek FM show about the people who make Star Trek. I'm Mike. I'm John. And today we are continuing our retrospective on Quentin Tarantino, looking at every single movie that he's directed leading up to his work on Star Trek 14, uh, hopefully. And today we're going to take a look at the sixth film by Quentin Tarantino, Inglorious Bastards. But before we do that, uh, just a little bit of news, uh, you know, something which, I don't know, is pretty cool. Uh, it was revealed when the credits rolled, I guess, I hadn't seen it up until now, uh, that uh, the director of uh, this week's episode of Star Trek Discovery, episode 12, Vaulting Ambition, is Hanel Culpepper, uh, who's a director who has done lots and lots of TV. She's done everything from Flash and Gotham to Hawaii Five O to Parenthood, every, every show and uh i mean she did a hell of a job on discovery if you ask me i mean just just the first shot it's like a v- visual effects shot of like this shuttle pod uh just leaving shuttlecraft like leaving the ship it's so it's so awesome it's it, it, because you see, you're like basically following the ship you're kind of like attached to the ship and then you see it like come out of the bay, and then you see the Shenzhou just, like, disappear into the back. That's really cool. Anyway. Hey, yeah. She she did a good job. Um, But one of the things which is really cool, which is noteworthy, because, like, I, I don't know, you, I take it you haven't been watching After Trek, right? No, I have not. Okay. Um. Well, uh, uh, last week uh, they had Ted Sullivan, a writer-producer on, and he was talking about how, you know, one of the things that he's really proud of working on the show is the amount of diversity behind the scenes and how, you know, there's lots and lots of women and, uh, but Hanel Culpepper is the first black woman to direct an episode of Star Trek, which is crazy to think that it's taken, you know, 52 years to do, but Hey, that's pretty great.
1: That is great. Uh, and I agree with you. It seems like an awfully long stretch for this to, you know, that's kind of, Oh, well, well, you know, like, it's. I, I think it probably takes you off guard, because you're like, that can't be right. Right. You can't possibly be right, but it's apparently right.
0: It is. There, there are very, very few women who have directed for Star Trek. I mean, I, I just saw the list, and it's like, pretty sure it's single digits, you know, which is insane, but... Um, You know, two on Discovery already, so that's great. And, you know, Culpepper, just for, for, you know, nerds like us, she also has a little short film that she did back in 2005 up on her website called uh, How to Stand in Line for Star Wars. Mm. And mm. it's literally <laughs> just sort of like a... It's done like one of those like '50s instructional videos, you know, like or not videos, like films, you know, like yeah. Oh, you know how to stand in line for Star Wars, you know. First, make sure how does zinc contribute to your daily life exactly that sort of thing. Yeah, and I mean, it it looks like she has footage from you know episode one and episode two. I, I don't think she has any from episode three. I think maybe it came out like well, right
1: before. Yeah, if if three. she's doing standing in line and it's released in two thousand five, it was probably released before episode three came out, or well, no. created Be- beforehand.
0: Oh yeah, before yeah, but people people were were standing in line and up ep- for episode three.
1: Well, yes, no, I know, but I'm like s- saying that like she's oh. talking about standing in line. Oh, so, and that and that so the payoff would is know, that like you've yeah. learned how to stand in line for Star Wars and now let's go see episode three.
0: Right. Right. And you know it's it's cool I mean it's cool just seeing you know all the people from I mean as someone who did stand in line I know you stood in line a lot longer than I did How long were you in line for episode 1
1: Oh well episode 1 uh no yeah for the camping out I slept overnight on a sidewalk yes
0: See I was going to do that I wanted to do that so badly but I didn't really realize the culture I didn't realize that I could be like hey, man, is it okay if I go to McDonald's for a minute? And they'd be like, yeah, sure, you know, because I couldn't get anyone to do it with me. So, like, I timed it out, and I'm like, I can, you know, hold my bladder for seven hours, so I'm going to (laughs) go seven hours beforehand. And by the time that I did, like, the
1: line was literally, like, two blocks Uh, away, but... I remember uh, camping out overnight for uh, Return of the Jedi when it was... uh re-released in 97 and it was it was brutal because it was like chilly and rainy and miserable and like everybody was unhappy and there was somebody who tried to uh they they like left a walking stick with their website on it you know because websites were just becoming a thing and like left and then came back the following morning after like sleeping in a warm dry bed night the crowd turned on them and kicked them out and they were like, no, you are not here. You get out of line right now. Like, That's how miserable the weather was. I can't believe there were lines for Jedi in 97. It was to see the uh, the, 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 the uptown theater, the, the theater that everybody wants to see things on uh, th- that screen in D.C. That was the theater um, that, that people were camping out for. It was nowhere near the line for episode one, yeah. nowhere near that.
0: I was gonna say Um, I went to McClure Court on opening day of Star Wars in '97, and the theater wasn't even full. You know,
1: uh, Uptown was like one of those old school movie palaces with like balconies and like a giant. Like it was there was only one screen in the whole place, and the screen was like the wall of a building sort of thing. And so people, you know, loved to go to it. And you know, I mean, early days of fandom and stuff like that was DC and we're stupid and you know. Got nothing better to do, I guess I don't know. I mean seriously, if I could time travel back to that young lad <laughs> sleeping on a sidewalk, I'd be like dude what what are you doing? They got plenty of tickets oh well, you Just know it,
0: but it was still fun, it was still fun I don't know and and you know there is the whole like now now that there's reserved seating, it's completely like I saw people for episode eight were lined up outside of the Chinese theater like a week in advance, and it's like you literally have your seat reserved. Like, yes. what is it that you're doing? But, you know, like like here, this was... And, and I didn't realize this. Like, you know, this was all, like, L.A.-based. They're like, oh, um, there's the Chinese theater line, and then there's the Westwood theater line, you know? Mm. And it sounded like, you know, like the people in the Westwood line were like, the Chinese theater is for the tourists, you know? The real people <laughs> who want to come to Westwood, <laughs> which I didn't know about. And there's, like, this one guy, he's like, I want... Uh, row P, seat seven, that's the most acoustically perfect seat in the theater. That's where Steven Spielberg insists on sitting when he goes to this theater. You know, like that sort of thing. And, you know, he's like, so he's like, I need to get in there first because I need that seat, you know, which I can relate to. I am certainly someone who has done that on numerous occasions, but...
1: Well, I mean, the the seat definitely matters. I, I remember, gosh, man, I was, you know, it's not even about a Star Wars movie or anything. I used to be a very big stickler for the movie theater that was finally put in in the you know the town where I originally grew up and all of that stuff. Uh, in the main auditorium, seventh row was the row to what like any row beyond the seventh row sucked. It was terrible. But I always had, not always, but I I would have people with me. Who were like, no, that's too close. I want to sit closer to the back. And I would actually, I'd be there with a group of people. And I'd be like, okay. And cool. they would go sit in their spot and I'd be like, I'll see you after the film. I'm not, like, I'm not going to sit there. We're just,
0: I, not I, gonna definitely, I definitely know that. You know, when when I was a projectionist, uh, you know, they're, you know, in theater number seven, which is where I screened all the movies, you know, cause you got to watch them ahead of time to make sure there's nothing wrong with them. You know, we'll talk about yeah. that in a little bit, but, yeah. um you know, sometimes like employees would come or whatever to watch movies too. And I I literally had a masking taped X on the bottom of my seat and no one could sit in that seat. That was my seat. And then when, uh, (laughs) when the seats were taken out and replaced with, you know, new and improved seats, I was like, can I get that seat right there? And the owner was like, yeah. You can have that seat. So I do now have that seat. Even, you know, this is how possessive I was of the seat. I have it in my living room, right? Over there. Right. You so.
1: you live with a very patient woman, Mike. That's all <laughs> I'm going to say about that. But I love that, and I applaud it. That's great. <laughs> anyway,
0: just, just thought that was cool. Thought it should be noted. So, yeah. um, all right. Let's move on to our feature film for today, which is... Quentin Tarantino's *Inglorious Bastards*. Uh, this is a movie which came out in two thousand and nine, uh, about two years after *Death Proof*. In, you know, Tarantino was really starting to increase his output at this point in time. He got over that hump, you know, after uh, Jackie Brown, you know, into *Kill Bill*, and then you know, there was nothing stopping him. I guess from this point on. And uh, yeah, do you want to give a description of this movie?
1: It is uh, an a historical fiction film, uh, an alternate history, if you will, uh, a tale of uh, Nazi hunters that are set loose during World War II uh, with the express purpose of, in, in the words of their leader, killing Nazis and, you know, the other people that they encounter along the way who are also interested in killing Nazis and, uh, you know... Uh, as we love to say, hijinks ensue. Yes, they do. Yes, they do. You know, it's
0: um, a movie. Well, I think it definitely you have to say it takes place in the movie movie universe, right? Because yes, uh, the the events that unfold are certainly contradictory to uh, history. Um, yes, but yeah, um, in in a lot of ways, though, it's played a lot. I think straighter than, than a lot of his, his other movie, mm-hmm. movie, movies. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. but, uh, but yeah, but it's, it's interesting because like this movie was like, he had talked about doing this movie for years and it was really kind of a question of like, well, what form is it going to take? Because he talked about how, you know, his idea was like four hours long And at one point he was thinking about splitting it up into two volumes like he did with Kill Bill. And he was going to call, you know, like the first one, you know, Once Upon a Time in Nazi-occupied France, you know, which ends up being the title of the first chapter. um, Because one of the things which is kind of unique about this, and, and, you know, we're going to see this over his next few movies or his remaining few movies is, you know, it's a Western it's a Western that takes place in World War II, but it's a Western that takes place in France, you know, <laughs> but, uh, it, but it's still like in terms of, you know, the sort of like genre cliches and stuff like that. It's, it's a Western through and through and yeah, that, that's, that's pretty cool. Um, but it's sprawling. I mean, and and that's the thing. At one point he was saying it was going to be like a novel or like a miniseries, or he didn't know how to condense it. And then when he finally did, he's like, okay, I've got into like two and a half hours, you know, by basically chopping out like tons and tons of stuff. And it's like, okay, is this just like a fraction of what this idea was? Are we going to see something more, you know, somewhere down the line or whatever? But the end result I think is like an extremely taut movie which is one of his best
1: I completely agree I, th- I think it's I think it's amazing I think I mean you know to speak to your point about the western there's uh, you know in the beginning of the film there's a shot that's a straight-up homage to the searchers yeah like I it, it still blows my mind seeing it again this time I'm like this is this is so crazy that he lifted it straight out and paid homage to John Ford in a film about fictional Nazi hunters. Like that's just so incredibly Tarantino, you know, oh, yeah. through and through. And the fact that he like I view this as the thing that makes Inglorious Bastards work so well is the fact that this is. The type of movie you see in your head that nobody else sees when they don't like some sort of schlocky, low-budget, grindhouse type of movie. What I mean by that is, is that when you're younger and you see a movie that is that schlocky type of alternate history or something like that, sometimes somebody else is sitting there with you or somebody older than you is watching and is like, yeah, okay, that's all right. But this is the movie you saw in your head. This is how cool it was. This is how amazing it was to watch this sort of thing. and like that's you know I think that contributes to why the characters are so much bigger than life and why this feels part and parcel like it belongs with Death proof with Kill Bill. It belongs with those movies, even though it is in large part, I think a perfection of them like he drops those other conceits of I'm gonna do sections that are a tribute to every single. Uh, you know, in in homage to every single type of film that I've ever watched, or I'm going to have a missing reel, or I'm going to do a, like he just makes that movie. And he says, this is like, it again comes across like, this is the type of movie that if somebody who was one of those directors in the 1970s had the money, this is what they would have made.
0: Yeah. You know, it, it, it took me a while to sort of wrap my head around this one because there is a thing that happens like post Jackie Brown, where Tarantino almost like abandons what sort of like made his movies like original in, sen- in a sense in terms of like style like Pulp Fiction feels like a complete movie that just exists in its own world right whereas with Kill Bill to start like it it feels like okay he's kind of you know as we talked about um, you know riffing on movies that have come before. You know, and and like you're saying, you know, in terms of the style, like, you know, doing a, a sequence that takes place in China, which is, you know, like degraded, like three or four generations in order to make it look like a movie that would play in like a A grindhouse, you know, theater, because it was like a bootleg 35 millimeter print that was taken off of like another crappy print. You know what I mean? Instead of being just like this pristine image, and and you know, death proof obviously takes that to a whole other level. And with Inglorious Bastards, I think partially because of the subject matter, partially because it is like an alternate history, and because it is like a western, like I, I, I. for the longest time sort of like lumped it into that category but like you know the more you watch it and everything or the more i watch it you know the more i i sort of realize like no it's not that and and i mean i'm i'm not necessarily critical of of what he's doing in kill bill and death proof you know i think that is fine for those movies obviously i love you know especially kill bill but it, it in some ways is kind of like yeah I wish that he would just kind of like play it straight in a sense though instead of you know like sort of like playing to the form and you know like that was one of the things with Kill Bill I, I love the way that Kill Bill looks but you know and this is something we haven't talked about he got Robert Richardson to photograph that movie and Robert Richardson is one of the best cinematographers on the planet he photographed. I mean, so tons of movies, JFK, you know, natural born killers, bringing out the dead, you know, I mean, uh, it's like just some of the best looking movies ever. And here he is, you know, working with Tarantino and Tarantino's like, okay, yeah, shoot this scene. And then we're going to like post process it into something that looks like schlock, you know, and it's like, Okay, I mean that's cool and everything, but like I want to see a collaboration between Tarantino and Richardson where they're both bringing their A game and not intentionally making the image look bad, and that's what we get with Inglorious Bastards. I think that this is his best photographed movie to date, Tarantino. That is, I
1: mean, yeah, I I I I can't argue against that. I I mean, it, it is beautiful.
0: Yeah. The, the the scene which always gets me, which every time I'm see I see it, I'm like, oh god, is uh, <laughs> when they're eating the strudel. Yeah, and, and the way that he shoots mm-hmm. like, the the cream and everything, I'm like, yep. oh my god, I need to eat some strudel.
1: <laughs> yeah, uh, there. But there's there's so much. I mean, again, you see Tarantino getting. You know, I didn't know who Christoph Waltz was. I doubt many people knew who Christoph Waltz was before this. But finding the right actor for that part, getting that performance out of him, and never mind the fact that something I didn't even really—I mean, you notice, but you don't really think about—but because you know we're we're going back and we're doing the rewatch, trying to have you know you know pick out certain things, how how incredibly mind blowing it is, and rare for an American director to have a multilingual film.
0: Yeah, and he's like talked about
1: that. An appropriately an appropriately fluent one too where they're actually speaking the languages. Like it's crazy right. how oh, it's amazing.
0: And he you know, he's talked about that a lot, you know, in regards to this movie and how, you know, one of the things which he finds super fascinating about World War II is that language played such a key role in you know in in the war you know where where you had like spies and stuff like that people interacting and your mastery of a language could be the difference between life and death and you know that plays out you know perfectly in that scene in the cafe in the basement you know and and it's it's amazing but because of that you know he did want to cast actors who were, you know, native to the countries that the characters were from in order to get that authenticity. So he, you know, he was shooting, I think they were shooting, I, I, I'm assuming they, they actually did shoot in like France and stuff like that.
1: But Yeah, I'm pretty sure they did.
0: You know, so, I mean, they they were sh- shooting in Europe for sure. And, and, you know, he wanted European actors, you know, to play these roles. And, you know, that's how he found Christoph Waltz, who, yeah, had been in, a bunch of German stuff that was not at all big. No one knew who this guy was, no one at all. And Tarantino found him, put him in this movie, and he won the Oscar for Best Supporting Actor. And he's worked with Tarantino ever since. And has, has you know, gained a career. And, I mean, you look at Waltz's performance, like, in that first scene, right? And, I mean, if yes. you think of this as, like, his first yeah. movie, in a sense, you know, obviously he had worked forever, but first movie on a you know large scale, like he is so sure of himself.- mm-hmm. He has yeah. such a mastery of the craft, and for someone to just come in, someone who we in America have never heard of before, just a yeah. brand new face to come in and literally just amazing. you know, it's, yeah, unbelievable.
1: It is, and he, you know, you're right. There's the mastery there, but I also have to give him Tarantino so much credit for having Pitt in the type of role that he is, because I really think Pitt, he's a great actor, but this is the type of role I always want to see Brad Pitt in, the the offbeat role, ever since he played against type for the first time with 12 monkeys and everybody saw him and said, whoa, Hey, this is not just, you know, pretty long hair legends of the fall guy. This is something special here. And, you know, and then there was fight club and there's all of this. And the role that he plays in this is so like Tarantino gets that trademark necessary quality for a Tarantino film out of, out of him and that scene as well, because you know, talk about Pitt and Waltz. That scene where Waltz effortlessly switches over to Italian and starts talking to them in the lobby and gets uh you know Brad Pitt to, you know, to say his his uh his cover name three times just to, to drill into him, like just to to give that little needle of like I figured you out and I'm just gonna string this along and like you don't know who's gonna break and who knows what at this point and it's just it it's brilliant but also we see a, a you know a recurring item with Tarantino again in a an extremely strong female lead who is the difference who is the hero of the film
0: yeah yeah uh, and that that character is played by Melanie Laurent. And to me, she just steals this movie. I mean, it's called *Inglorious Bastards*. Brad Pitt is the leader of of the of the bastards, and his name is you know above the title on the posters and all that stuff. But to me, Melanie Laurent is clearly the lead in this movie. I, I don't know. I mean, it's it's weird in that it has that that sprawling narrative where it, it, it'll follow it'll you know it has different chapters just like you know Kill Bill same font and everything and it'll follow like one set of characters and there'll be like a scene told from this person's perspective and then we won't see them again for another half an hour or whatever but to me like she's the driving force in this movie and she's so good you know and, you know, the the character that she plays, uh, Shoshana, she is, uh, you know, well, I mean, I guess for those people who don't know, she's a character whose uh, family, She's a, she's a Jewish character whose family is killed by Christoph Waltz's character in the first scene of the movie. And now, you know, like four years later... She's hiding in France. She's she's running a movie theater, changed her name and everything like that. And now her paths her path crosses again with uh, with Christoph Waltz. And I, I don't know. I, I love that character so much. Maybe part of it is just because she runs a movie theater, and <laughs> you know, you know
1: <laughs> yes. I you, let, let's talk about that too, because of course something that I, I didn't really give a lot of weight to the first time watching Glorious Bastards, but that I did this time was Tarantino takes great care to highlight how the process worked for film and uh, you know, the having Sam Jackson narrate the section about, you know, nitrate film being extremely flammable and everything. But having everything set up and having her and her projectionist walk through you know, this reel is here and that reel is there and even having, you know, the the reel change item, you know, the little bell ring mm-hmm. to give give them the uh, the the indication and everything. It's I imagine that for you, it's a lovely, you know, sequence in the film because there's great care. Did he miss anything? Was there anything incorrect about the process that he highlighted?
0: Not really. I mean, it's it's pretty spot on. You know, that's basically exactly how it is. Um the, the only thing which which is weird is you know the the guy uh, marcel um her projectionist is like reel 1 is on projector 1 reel 2 is on projector 2 reel 3 is on the bench and reel 4 is in the can and it's like okay but why is reel 3 on the bench and and also like it's like a, a rewind bench where you can go basically you can wind the film from one reel to another and I mean, I guess maybe he stopped because she came up, but it's like, why is the reel like halfway wound? <laughs> it's just, it's just a, a random thing. Like, why would anybody just leave a reel like that?
1: That doesn't make any sense. But and, and I can guarantee you that myself and anybody else who watched this for this week just said, huh. I didn't notice that. Okay.
0: Yeah. And but, that's
1: what I love about you, man, is like that. that's that little thing that I never would have caught in a million years.
0: The, the other thing which bothers me, but, you know, I mean, whatever, I guess people do this, you know, whatever. I mean, I, I, I'm sure I have done this to a million projectionists myself, but, um, you know, the guys like I threaded real one. And, you know, they have like carbon arcs, you know, which which they would use for the lamps where it was literally like a rod, uh, you know, which was burning. And you'd have to like change them, you know, because they would like just burn out. And then, you know, you need to put a new one in and you got to focus it and everything. So with the the projector threaded, she l- opens up the lamp house and like looks inside and like turns a knob or something like that. And I'm assuming that was to like focus the light or whatever I don't know, I mean, like clearly the guy had set it up. Why is he she messing with what he did, but you know whatever it's I, a bit I, of
1: stage business that shouldn't happen is what you're saying,, yeah,
0: although that being said, I'm sure I've done that a million times myself, you know, like, oh yeah, I threaded it, okay, that's good, and then I look at it, and I'm, it's like that scene in the abyss where um Lindsay's like walking through the the rig. And there's like a little knob and she twists it (laughs) and then, you know, Ed Harris just twists it back.
1: (laughs) Yes, 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 yes. I know know exactly. Yes. (laughs) Yeah. Okay.
0: But but yeah, I mean, this is one of the if not the most accurate portrayal of film projection I've I've ever seen in a movie. Um, And yeah, Shoshana is definitely my favorite movie projectionist um, because of basically what she does in this movie, which is pretty awesome, you know. I, I won't that spoil is. it, but uh yeah, it's 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 pretty
1: cool. I have to ask you though, that uh during some of the crazier times, have you ever dreamed of doing what your did with an audience that didn't <laughs> behave? No, because you know, when you're a projectionist, it's you're
0: you're up in the booth and all you're doing is making sure that the movie is running and what the audience is doing down there is really none of your concern, you know? You're just making sure oh, that it's all good okay. for them um but the the stuff with like the nitrate film like that is accurate too like that stuff was extremely flammable and yeah it would go up just like that so much so that you know e- even just like f- 10 years ago you would see signs posted on doors leading up to projection booths which say safety film only which is basically you know like you know film which is not nitrate you know now it's made out of like Mm. polyester and everything which will melt or whatever but it won't ignite into you know flames and it's like okay yeah safety film only yeah that's good that's a good sign to have up in this multiplex where they will never (laughs) ever show a nitrate film it's very very rare that nitrate films are still shown I, i know that um the was it the Dryden House or something like that uh, basically the at the Kodak Eastman Library whatever headquarters in Rochester New York they do like a lot of screenings of like old, like archival prints and stuff like that, and they do some fe- and they have like occasionally, like maybe once a year, they have like a nitrate film festival or something like that. But it's hmm. a big deal, you know. And they're they're taking like a million precautions to make sure that the whole place doesn't, you know, blow up. Do you have to sign a waiver <laughs> I don't just know. in case? <laughs> Probably, yeah. But um, <laughs> but yeah, they say that nitrate prints and with carbon arc is amazing they say that the look of that is unlike anything you've seen today because you know you can't but they just say well now
1: i want to go up to the kodak place and watch it i I know
0: me too me too i'm I'm very curious to know what it looks like because you know it's hard you know when people are describing it what does that mean but so yeah i mean i i i definitely think inglorious bastards is worth watching i'm guessing you do too right
1: uh, to uh, to pick a line from uh, from Brad Pitt uh, at you know in the film, it's a masterpiece. <laughs> so,
0: yes, and it's uh, you know, I mean, we're not the only ones who think so. It was nominated for best picture, and Tarantino was nominated for best director and best screenplay, and Robert Richardson was nominated for best you know cinematography, which is noteworthy because with the exception of Death Proof, which Tarantino photographed himself, all of Tarantino's movies for the past 15 years have been photographed by Robert Richardson, so it's only reasonable to assume that he would shoot this this Star Trek movie, which it's like all my dreams come true. Richardson is amazing. He's won three Oscars. He won them for JFK, The Aviator, and Hugo, and he's one of the very, very, very
1: Best in the business. So I didn't realize he'd done JFK. Oh yeah, yeah. That movie is phenomenally shot. It is. That is that is a movie. Even before I knew how to appreciate cinematography, I knew how to appreciate the way that film looked. Yeah. So that that is for sure. And the Aviator too. It was really good in the Aviator. Oh yeah, he's really good. All of his movies are are just stunning. Yeah. Yeah.
0: For sure. Hugo shot in three D. You know, cool.
1: Haven't seen Hugo. Have to. It's pretty good. I will.
0: Yeah. It's not great. Pretty good. It's good to watch a- with the kids. At least I know it looks good. Yeah, yeah. It's it's good to watch with the kids, you know. Get, cool. Get, some, There's an get excuse. some some film history in there, you know. So anyway, it's been fun talking about Inglorious Bastards today, but that's not all we're talking about here on Trek FM this week. So here's a look at what you may have missed elsewhere on the network.
1: Previously on Trek.fm, Warp Five. Like Mario is not a good person and i don't like him but when he openly mistreats luigi is when i hate him is when i make the decision i don't want him to make it through this i don't want him to make it to the end at all the orb
0: that blanket really helped the show because it didn't end up turning into what voyager did which is we got to launch a network. This has to be this. It has to be put in a box that we can't get out of, you know. Like, Deep Space Nine takes the box, crumples it up, and throws it in the corner. The 602 Club.
1: I love it. Um, Have I said that enough? I I think I said earlier that I was waiting to get to Timothy Dalton. Um, Not to knock on Roger Moore, but I I didn't like Roger Moore as much as I liked um, Dalton, and then Connery, and then Craig. The Ready Room since 90 early 92 i had been i was lucky enough to get the contract to do the companion for next generation went out for a week to la when ds9 was still very very secret and i just my first glimpse of ds9 was knowing that they were working on it and you know like the script was being passed around in unmarked envelopes between the offices and that's what else is happening on Trek.fm.
0: Check out these shows and join the conversation about your favorite corner of the Star Trek universe and beyond. You'll find us wherever you get your podcasts. If you're an Apple user, be sure to hit the subscribe button in Apple Podcasts on iPhone, iPad, or Apple TV or the desktop iTunes app and get the latest episodes as soon as they're published. And please leave us a star rating and a written review. If you're not an Apple user, we've got you covered as well. You can find our shows on Google Play Music, Stitcher, TuneIn, Spreaker, SoundCloud, Windows Phone, and most third-party apps, and you can stream and download the MP3 file from our website or grab the RSS link as well. We'd love to hear your thoughts on today's show, and there are many ways for you to do that. The best place is to join the larger conversation in the Babel Conference on Facebook. That's our listeners group. Just type Babel, B-A-B-E-L, into the search field, and we should come right up. If you'd like to send us an email, you can use the form on our website at trek.fm slash contact. Just choose to send to a show and select Stage 9. That'll come right to us. You can also find the network on Twitter at Trek.fm and on Facebook at facebook.com slash trek.fm. John, where can people find you on the internet?
1: Well, you can find me as Castle Junkie on your social network of choice. You can find me co-hosting Words with Nerds with my pal Craig. And over on the Nerd Party Network, you can find me co-hosting aggressive negotiations with Matthew Rushing and Great Shot Kid with you.
0: Yeah, you can find me over there. And you can also find me right here on Trek.FM doing a show called The Edge. And you can find me on Twitter at Mumbles3K. We'd like to thank our associate producers today, Jeff Sutter, Chris Steftonagel, and Norman C. Lau. Thank you very much. Thank you. If you'd like to help us keep all of our shows coming to you each week, you can become a patron of the network at Patreon. Visit patreon.com slash trekfm. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash trekfm to get all the details. Perks include early access to episodes, exclusive content, producer credits, and more Available through our special patrons website, Patron Zone. It requires a great deal of money to produce, host, and distribute these shows each month. We really appreciate any support you can give us and hope you'll join the team. Again, you'll find all the details at patreon.com slash Trek FM. All right, well that's Inglorious Bastards, the first film in the Quentin Tarantino Western trilogy, as it were. Yes. Next week We're going to take another look at history through the eyes of Quentin Tarantino with Django Unchained.